I think 2018 has the potential. In fact, I think it will be the most exciting year in previous history. We have some strategic initiatives underway that we'll be introducing to, uh, to our providers next year that I think are game changing. Welcome back to The Break Room. I am your host, Alexis Murray, and thank you for joining us for episode eight. 2017 is wrapping up and it has been both a big and for many confusing year for healthcare. Just to recap, we've seen numerous attempts to repeal and replace Obamacare, the scaling back of previous CMS requirements like macro and mandatory bundled payments, and major mergers like CVS and Aetna. Healthcare not only dominated the news, but it also dominated the ballot box. Virginia voters elected Ralph Northam as their next governor, indicating healthcare was their top concern in their vote. Maine voters also elected to expand Medicaid in their state after staunch opposition and vetoes from their governor. Healthcare news seems endless. So today we're going to sift through the headlines and touch base with two healthcare experts to focus on what we've actually learned this year and what we need to know for 2018. Our first speaker today is Dave Rothenberg, who was one of the founders of Privia Health and has served as its president since 2010. Dave received his bachelor's from Princeton University, his master's in international relations from the University of Cambridge, and his law degree from Harvard. Dave has been interviewed by The Wall Street Journal, CNN, PBS, Bloomberg TV, and The Washington Post on healthcare, new media, and technology issues. Let's head over to Dave. So let's start off with, can you tell me a little bit about your background and, you know, how you started Privia and why you thought Privia was really necessary in healthcare? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, so I'm from New York. I went to college in New Jersey. Uh, my, my first career, I guess, was uh, doing relief and development work. So I worked in, uh, in Kenya for Lutheran World Relief during the famine in Somalia. I worked in uh, the Republic of Georgia, former Soviet Union, after their civil war. And uh, and went from there where I felt like I was treating the, the symptoms of, of conflict and problems to getting a law degree and uh, and then after that working at the State Department where my interest was in kind of working on the, the, the problems uh, and trying to solve the problems that are uh, leading to famine or civil war or refugees or internally displaced people. Um, and, uh, and I was sort of, I was at the State Department in the late 90s. I was an entrepreneur in college, had a t-shirt business, and a surgeon friend of mine uh, kind of reached out to me to talk about a business idea. Um, and back then, we just met with one person to see if what they thought, uh, and we didn't even have something literally written on the back of a napkin. And in that meeting, the person committed to a certain amount of funding for this idea, and uh and I left the State Department to start a company called um, MD Links, which was uh, trying to figure out how you use the internet and digital content to keep physicians more current with this kind of flood of research that was that was coming at them. And uh, and that was uh, kind of a, a successful run. It's now I think one of the largest you know physician portals and information sites uh, you know um, you know online. Um, and uh, and then I got introduced to Jeff Butler. Uh, who's our chairman, uh, through some friends at the advisory board. And Jeff had uh, was working on a spin-out of Broadreach Healthcare. Broadreach Healthcare was this organization that was helping uh, countries in Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia kind of design HIV-AIDS treatment programs, uh, 
when they had high um, incidence of uh, HIV-positive populations. So um, Jeff had spent a lot of time in Africa working on health issues. I had done that. We became friends. And uh, they were, he was basically trying to take this model of organizing providers, wrapping around providers, uh, because they weren't always doctors, you know, uh, technology and systems uh, at the time to make sure people took their meds. We're trying to sort of bring that bring that mousetrap back to the U.S. and partner with payers. And we're a bit early. Um, you know, our first conversations with the payers got a lot of blank stares. This was before accountable care and before health reform. And uh, yeah, in 2010, I, you know, I was literally two guys in a basement thinking, hey, you know, if we can kind of get physicians uh, kind of to work together towards a common purpose, uh, there is so much wasteful spending, overspending, bilking in the system that that there there's it makes economic sense for uh, the payers of healthcare, whether it's insurance companies, employers, government, whoever, to you know to reward kind of doctors for driving better outcomes uh, and doing it at lower cost. And so, um, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, once accountable care passed, I think, and everyone started talking about the types of things we're talking about today, you know, I think Privia was, was sort of well positioned. And I think what, what distinguishes us, uh, you know, from other groups, because we're not certainly the only group that's been able to, you know, accomplish some of those things, uh, but most that have done that have done that in a particular community. Mm-hmm through developing a culture among the physicians that takes a long, long time to develop. And then if you move that to a different location, uh, at least we're seeing kind of mixed results. The model that we're, you know, that underlies what we're doing is around, you know, how do you use, how how do you become technology enabled so that uh, you're always going to have to adjust to the, you know, the issues within each market, but how, how can you kind of pick up a model, adjust it, and, uh, and make it successful in other markets. And I think we're, you know, to some extent, we're still in the early days, um, but uh, we're really proud of what we've, uh, we've accomplished to date. So in 2017, we've oscillated between one position and another as this country grapples with how to move forward with healthcare. How will you evaluate healthcare's current position specifically for independent doctors? So, you know, I, I think to answer that question, you've got to start with, you know, What's the problem that regulators and policymakers are, are grappling with? And I think the problem in healthcare is that our country is spending 18% of GDP on healthcare, right? 20, 30 years ago, it was 10%. We're spending twice as much as, as a percent of GDP as most industrial countries. Um, but it doesn't translate into better outcomes, right? We're certainly not living twice as long as they do in, in Finland and in, and in Japan. So the question is, is, is why are we spending so much? Why are we spending $3 trillion a year, you know, in healthcare? And, you know, from what I'm reading and from the research that I see, it's not so much that we're doing more than everybody else. We are. We do more MRIs and EKGs and more imaging. It, it's true as compared to, you know, Europe and uh, other industrialized country. But to me, it seems like the biggest difference uh, relates to unit price that just our prices are crazy as compared to the rest of the world. So if you get an MRI, you know, in this country, it could cost two, $3,000. In Switzerland, it might be $300. So how do, we, how do we get there? And, you know, I think what it is is this kind of 
typical standard fee-for-service system where you get paid more for doing more stuff. And that has encouraged different types of consolidation. Then we have entities that have near sort of monopolistic pricing power um, and and we're sort of driving higher costs. So how the market or the industry is responding is trying to shift from a fee-for-service payment model to one that rewards for um, outcomes and how healthy you keep a population. So this kind of shift to value, I think, is the, the heart of your question, mm-hmm. right? Are we, are we shifting? Is it paused? Are we going fast enough? And, um, you know, I, I think certainly I think Medicare has done a um, has been very active in kind of leading this shift. Otherwise, the pie just keeps growing. Like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that has like massive impact, right? Like mm-hmm. it makes our companies less competitive. GM is spending twice as much or I should say twice as much. GM is spending more mm-hmm. on healthcare than it is on steel, right? Like it's it's a significant problem for our employers. So I think I think everybody is trying to figure out how can we kind of more rationalize mm-hmm. our uh, our payment models uh, to physicians and to providers and to others in the, in the ecosystem so that we are incenting the right behavior, mm-hmm. which is basically high quality and keeping patients healthy. So then the question is, you know, I guess your question is kind of w- where are we in that, uh, you know, in that process? And, you know, I think we've made some pretty significant moves, right? CMS has, what is it, 90% of all fee-for-service payments are going to be linked to quality by next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, For Blue Cross, I think they have $45 billion in value arrangements today. Mm -hmm. Aetna says that, you know, their CEO said they want to have 75% of all payments tied to value uh, in 2020, you know, and and so on and so on. Even Privia, you know, is managing probably, you know, more than $2 billion in value contracts today. So, So it's happening. But if you were to ask me, hey, when you launched your first practice in Privia, you know, in um, January 2014, so now mm-hmm. we're coming up on on four years, mm-hmm. you know, are we as far down that uh, continuum or that spectrum towards value and risk and partial capitation or capitation? Uh, yeah, I would have thought we were, would have been farther along right. by, by this point, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, you know, I think what we see is in, you know, again, healthcare is local, so I think there's certain states, you know, California and others that are, you know, much more advanced, you know, you know, you know, our organization is operating in, uh, um, in Virginia and Maryland and DC and Georgia and Texas and in New York. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's no doubt in my mind that there, there isn't an alternative. We, no, nobody wants to go back to just this pure fee for service model where all the incentives are just, you know, creating, you know, making the pie keep growing from 18 to 19 to 20% of GDP. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's not a, it's not a clean line getting further down that continuum. Mm -hmm. There are uh, kind of stops and starts along the way. And to that point of the fact that you thought that we'd be further in the value-based care journey than we are today, under the Trump administration, HHS has significantly loosened programs that would have forced providers to move to value-based care. So mandatory bundled payments have been scaled back. New macro provisions that will now exclude an additional 134,000 doctors, in addition to the already 800,000 physicians that were already excluded. Do those changes, to your point, sort of derail the path to value-based care, or are we still kind of moving forward as scheduled? Yeah, so I think that it is, uh, 
Well, I definitely think it's a it's a challenge and a bump on the road. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I go around the country and talking to doctors, and they often ask questions similar to this to me, just because our company's based near Washington D.C. They think I have some sort of inside information <laughs> because of that, which I, which I don't. You know, the, the way I think about these issues is there are issues that are political, mm-hmm. and then there are issues that I view as sort of bipartisan, right? So the political issues are you know, should there be a mandate, right? Yeah. And, you know, right says, you know, right and left can, you know, can debate that. Mm-hmm. A political issue is to what extent should we expand Medicaid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- those are things where, you know, Democrats and Republicans, you know, may not always agree. Um, but I do think there's parts of how we're approaching healthcare spending that is bipartisan, mm-hmm. right? Which is we have to control spending. That That's not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is having this is a big issue for our country. One of the, you know, one of the huge economic problems of our country is how do we not allow this pie to keep growing and growing and growing, right? And it's not an academic or an esoteric discussion, right? This is bank uh, healthcare is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in our country, right? This is this is crushing the middle class. Um, you know what we know is that you know. Most uh, sort of necessities, food, housing, transportation, et cetera, if you look at over the last 10 years, almost all of those costs as a percentage of middle class income has been going down, mm-hmm. except healthcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, healthcare is the only thing that it always, it always goes up. So I think there's recognition of that. Um, you know, the question is, how does that then get implemented into policy? So one area where we see where we're bullish on, I guess, is um, is Medicare Advantage, right? So that's a those are value and risk deals that you know, as far as I can tell, both the right and the left, um, you know, support. Um, but I think the, the 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 question or the problem is how do you set those incentives appropriately so that you are uh, driving the right behavior out of providers. And I think the pushback on MIPS and MACRA, um, you know, is, hey, there are, I don't know, too many steps or, or those types of things. I think with the commercial providers, the challenge is, you know, they may all have their own um, value-based programs. So for a Cigna patient, I need to do A, B, and C. But mm-hmm. for, you know, a Blue Cross patient, I need to do, you know, D, E, and F. And for, you know, and so you kind of got to do all these steps, jump through all these hoops and kind of, you know, really stick the triple Lindy. And then at the end of all that kind of is the, is the upside worth, is the juice worth the squeeze. Yeah. So I think there is, um, I think there's a lot of kind of work to be done and I certainly feel like in the administration right now, there's concern that uh, those incentives are not structured the right way. But I don't believe I don't believe the employers who are really paying the bill uh, on the commercial side or Medicare. I don't think there's any appetite to go back to the way things were and just have this kind of fee for service model that's sort of uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, driving up unit prices, driving up utilization, and you're not getting better results for it. So one priority in 2017 is the amount of pressures on our current clinical structure. Increased time in front of a computer creates administrative burdens, and administrative burdens certainly aren't helping physician burnout, and physician burnout doesn't help clinical decisions. So it's become this kind of dangerous cycle. How can we work to release some of this pressure on our physicians, particularly independent physicians? Yeah, we're we're spending a lot of time at Privia thinking about that question, right? What we know is you know, from health affairs, uh, about 56% of 
uh, physicians have negative feelings about their profession. 51% are pessimistic about the future of medicine, and half of all doctors won't recommend medicine as a career for their children. I mean, that's amazing, right? These are people, I mean, it's such a noble profession, right? You are, you, you, you're helping people who are suffering suffer less, right? Mm-hmm. And they're actually saying their kids kind of don't do it. So, so how have we screwed that up, you know? And I think what, what we're finding in our conversations and our research is the thing that's leading to physician burnout the most has to do with um, kind of electronic medical records and how we have turned a physician into basically a data entry clerk. Right. And they're spending all these hours in the day uh, either at the office or kind of at home doing all this type of documentation. Now, the documenting and documenting and having EMRs and having physicians share a platform is massively important mm-hmm. for population health and keeping population healthy, right? They're just, if it's in a, if it's on a piece of paper in a folder in a cabinet, yeah. like we don't know that, you know, it's hard to get that data out mm-hmm. that you can then run programs and close care gaps and and do all the things. And then you need workflow and you know, how do you make it simple on a physician to provide better care uh, or more cost-effective care? So for instance, you know, if a patient is diabetic and they're depressed, they're six times as expensive. So mm-hmm. how do you set up systems so when you diagnose someone with diabetes, you can quickly do a depression screening? Mm-hmm. Like, when you have workflow, when you have an EMR, like you can do all those kinds of things. You can you can get data, you can use analytics, you can. So so I'm not uh, so so EMRs are absolutely necessary for, in my opinion, for you know improving overall um, care to patients and you know and, and bending cost trend. The problem is it's the physician that's spending all this time typing all this info and clicking all these things. So. You know, one thing that we've started to pilot at Privia, you know, is scribes is basically just getting them out from behind the laptop and having kind of somebody else either listening in or participating in some way, either in the room or to be honest, the, the best model is when someone's not in the room, mm-hmm. uh, having somebody else, some, some lower cost, lower trained um, person uh, doing all the inputting. And what we're finding is that, that when you do that, you get... You, you get better outcomes. You have, you know, your, your documentation is better. The time for documentation is better. You're closing your encounters. The time for after-hour documentation, which for some, which for some doctors is ten to twenty hours a week, I mean, gets massively reduced. Um, and then there's population health activities you can do that the scribe can notice certain things and alert the doctor, you know, as well. So, um, you know, it's it's. You know, there, there's there's kind of quantitative data we have, but just the quality. Like when I talk to these doctors who have alleviated themselves from the burden of kind of typing all this information in, uh, it's like they got their life back a bit, you know, and they're not missing their kids' sports games mm-hmm. and they're not sort of disconnected after dinner because they have all these kind of charts they need to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think to have, you know, what we think about at Privia in having a kind of successful physician organization is uh, is is a lot about quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you you know how do you get back to 
focusing on patient care mm-hmm. um, and uh, and just have the quality of life that you, you know, the happiness that you wanted when you went into the profession. And to your point, reducing physician burnout is really good for both doctors and patients. And patients are really starting to require more for their, from their doctors as consumerism kind of takes hold and continues to dominate healthcare. So how do you think consumerism is changing how doctors interact with their patients? And what do physicians really need to prioritize to remain competitive and keep those patients? Because it seems like patients have more options now than they ever did before. Yeah, they absolutely do. Urgent cares are, are popping up. They're, they're different, uh, you know, di- different models uh, that physician groups are using to, to try to kind of respond to this consumer need. You know, I mean, look, my feeling is if, if, if I want a burrito, I can go on a Chipotle app I can, you know, t- tell them exactly kind of what I want. Mm-hmm. I can go pay for it. And then in 10 minutes I can go and I can kind of pick it up. Like, like ordering tacos has become simpler, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, your physician, you know, visit, which is complex medicine with mm-hmm. highly educated people dealing with sophisticated issues. Like some of them don't have a website or, you know, the only way you get an appointment is they just you know, they have to be there when the phone's actually ringing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we think there's kind of a lot of uh, kind of a, a lot of improvement. Uh, what we're doing or a lot of what we think about is, you know, what are the kind of companies or, uh, you know, approaches to responding to consumer needs outside of healthcare mm-hmm. you know, that we can bring kind of into healthcare. So mm-hmm. if if open table is successful and people want to call restaurants, like how do you do that? How do you have open online scheduling, you know, for patients? And that's a that's a capability that that we built where folks want to pay for their visits. If they, if they want to do things online, if they want to, you know, how do you how do you develop the right type of kind of patient portals so that um, you know you enable uh, patients the ability to do that. Part of it is feedback, right? Like I think most good businesses, uh, you know, are constantly surveying, you know, their clients and customers to say what's working, what's not working, how can I get better, you know, and and and, and what are those issues? And so, you know, I think a lot of that can be done uh, kind of proactively with surveys. A lot of that has to be done by seeing how folks are rating you, right, on on Yelp and mm-hmm. Vitals and all those stuff. And what are they saying? Okay, and then how are you responding to, you know, kind of some of those issues? So, you know, I think we spend a lot of time, uh, we, we spend a lot of time on that. But I think in the, at the end, I, I think things around parking and waiting times and all those matter. But I think what patients are really after is, is convenience, mm-hmm. right, is access. You know, can I get to my doctor when I need my doctor? Or is he telling me there's a kind of a three-month wait? Mm-hmm. And... You know, that consumer need meshes with our, you know, population health goals, right? We have got, we cannot have folks kind of making unnecessary visits to the emergency room. It is massively expensive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's not usually the best site of service. Um, So it's, so it's basically how can we, you know, how, how can we improve access? How can we improve convenience? Um, and uh, part of that's, you know, going to be done from changes in the office, and part of that's going to be done with technology also. So yeah. how do we use telehealth and other, and other approaches to, um, you know, to, to, to respond to consumer needs? And I think sometimes my experience with physicians is uh, there's some that are kind of very forward thinking on this, uh, but a lot aren't. You know, it's just not, it's not their training, you know, it's not their background to be yeah. thinking about, 
you know, what are the ways I need to re-architect my practice or my online presence so that I am more responsive to the needs of, uh, you know, of my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do the surveys and you find the data, you know, it's doable. It's just not often the doctor's skill set. Next, we're talking with Doug Winters, who is the interim leader of Privia Health. Doug is a 16-year veteran of the managed care industry and most recently served as the president of Anthem's East Region, one of the largest divisions of Anthem. In this position, he managed $10 billion in annual revenue and 7.5 million Anthem customers. Doug received his bachelor's from Boston College, master's from Dartmouth, and his law degree from Suffolk University Law School. Can you just tell us about your career and how you started working in healthcare? Sure. Uh, So I started working in healthcare about 16 or 17 years ago. And the way I got into healthcare was um, really first as a patient. I had uh, Hodgkin's disease when I was about 21 years old. I just graduated from college and um, was fortunate enough to have a really good uh, experience with the healthcare system. And when I was uh, evaluating what I wanted to do for a career, uh, I thought about my experience, my own personal experience with healthcare, and thought it would be a good way to um, spend my professional life. And I was a, a practicing lawyer at the time. I made the shift into healthcare, and I didn't have a good way of getting into healthcare. So I made a decision to go back to graduate school and attended uh, the Dartmouth Institute, which coincidentally. Um, had I had professors there who were the kind of the architects of accountable care, folks like uh, Jack Wenberg and Elliot Fisher, who were literally consulted by the Obama administration when the Accountable Care Act was being developed and just had a really great educational experience there. And from there, uh, took a, a position as general counsel for Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. and was the the general counsel to that health plan. And that really began my my career inside a healthcare organization. So our Republican-led government has not succeeded in repealing Obamacare, but they are moving to reduce federal healthcare spending. So as they're working to reduce federal spend on healthcare, the current proposed tax plan would cut Medicare pay by $25 billion in 2018. So obviously everybody's payer mix is different, but what should independent physicians know about this shift in reimbursement from our federal government? The first thing that we all need to keep in mind is it is premature Mm -hmm. to really know what the impact is going to be on on Medicare. Mm -hmm. What's happening right now is that the tax legislation, um, as with all major legislation that has an impact on the federal deficit, Mm -hmm has to be scored by the Congressional Budget Office. That was done for this Republican tax plan, and the CBO determined that there would likely be a 10-year addition to the deficit of $1.5 trillion over that 10-year period. And in the case where a piece of legislation would increase the federal deficit, um, under the PAYGO law, the uh, Office of Management and Budget is required to um, do what's called sequestration, which is essentially mandatory cuts to other areas of spending to make sure that the federal deficit isn't increased. 
So in this case, they um, they would be looking to do sequestration cuts of the equivalent of $150 billion per year. And uh, Medicare would be a target for sequestration cuts. And the estimated amount would be about $25 billion a year. And that would begin in 2018. So that's where that figure of $25 billion comes from. Mm-hmm. The reason it's premature uh, to, you know, to think about the mag- a magnitude of cut that large is because the tax bill still has to be, you know, passed and signed into law by the president. Right. And as with all legislation, things are likely to change. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that could change, quite frankly, is how the um, Congressional Budget Office ultimately scores any final legislation. And it may decide that the um, the impact on the federal deficit isn't as large and therefore sequestration cuts um, don't need to be implemented. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, what providers really need to focus on right now, in addition to whatever um, lobbying they feel comfortable with, with their local legislature legislators around um, the tax law would be, you know, what, what do we know about um, reimbursement from CMS in, in 2018. And, and what we know is that um, there will be a very, very modest increase in the fee-for-service reimbursement from CMS. I think it is uh, less than one quarter or about one quarter of 1%. Um, that is really by virtue of a change to the conversion factor, which is being updated. There are some specialties that see a modest increase, internal medicine, uh, family medicine sees a modest increase as a result of that change in the conversion factor. Other specialties like cardiology and radiology see modest decreases, but there are, are no seismic shifts in reimbursement because of that. In addition, we you know we know that MIPS is going to be an important um, means by which um, physician reimbursement is determined in. Over the next several years, the uh, the amount of reimbursement that is um, uh, that is going to go either up or down is going to be dictated by um, quality performance and quality reporting that's done by physicians. So, an ongoing focus on um, the federal MIPS program and how to uh, optimize performance and therefore optimize uh, physician compensation is really important. So it looks like commercial payers are falling right behind CMS in hopes to obviously spend less on reimbursements. This year, Anthem announced their plans to no longer reimburse for MRIs and CT scans performed in an outpatient setting in a hospital in 13 of its 14 states. So where do you think commercial payers are headed in terms of reimbursement, and how can independent doctors prepare themselves for these potential changes if there are any changes moving forward? Right. So my uh, former employer, Anthem, uh, where uh, I spent my career for 16 years, announced at the um, uh, earlier this year, actually, that it was going to make some changes in uh, hospital uh, payment policies, I suppose. And one of the, the bigger changes and frankly, more controversial changes was one where Anthem said to hospitals, look, if an MRI or a CT scan Mm -hmm. can be uh, performed at a lower cost setting, Mm -hmm. then we will not pay you for performing that scan 
if you uh, are a higher cost. Right. And um, it was really an effort to for, for them to um, address what is an, um, an unwarranted variation in the price of, mm-hmm. of imaging services. It's not uncommon with, a, with, frankly, all healthcare services for there to be a lot of variation in the price. It's very common to have that occur with hospital outpatient services. Mm-hmm. And the variation can be significant. I mean, you're talking any, anywhere from an $800 MRI to a $5,000 MRI. And the price variation is really determined based upon what a hospital may have negotiated with a, with a payer and what their relative bargaining strength was or you know, what the kind of financial priorities of, of that health system or hospital were at the time the contract was being negotiated. But there exists a lot of variation. And so what Anthem and um, lots of payers are trying to do is to, um, in ways, normalize for that variation by saying we won't pay you more if um, it can be done at a, at a lower cost setting. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll see a lot more of that uh, from, from payers over time. One of the things that all payers, including Anthem, are, are reacting to is that uh, the cost of Healthcare continues to go up at two to three times the rate of inflation. That's problematic because when payers file their their uh, premium rates for an upcoming um, you know plan year, oftentimes uh, those rates are being scrutinized, sometimes even denied mm-hmm. by insurance regulators um, who who might see them as as excessive. So there's a lot of pressure on insurers to make sure that the premium increases are are kept within a reasonable limit and not two to three times the rate of inflation. And the only way to do that is by curtailing medical costs. They're getting a lot of pressure directly from employers mm-hmm. um, who feel like their costs are, are going up too much and they're increasingly demanding on payers that they be aggressive in, in curbing you know, medical cost growth. For independent providers, I don't think any of this is terribly bad news. I think in many ways, it's probably good news. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because um, if, the, if, if, as I suspect will happen, the impact of these policy changes is for um, more patient services to be done at lower cost sites of service. Right then independent providers are very well positioned to pick up that increased patient volume. I think also to the degree that independent providers may participate in a shared savings program, that kind of shift from high cost site of service to low cost site of service has, a, has an impact on an independent provider's um, uh, total cost performance. Mm-hmm. Even if that independent provider isn't rendering care himself or herself, the fact that a patient may have had a choice to have an MRI or a CAT scan done at one of two places, one of which was high cost and one of which was low cost, and um, ultimately had the service done, the imaging done at a low cost site of service because it wouldn't be paid for at a higher cost site of service, that ultimately has a financial impact, positive financial impact for 
an independent provider who's in a shared savings arrangement. So these these changes, while um, you know potentially financially harmful for um, large health systems, are not necessarily bad for independent providers. Mm-hmm. So we just talked about reimbursement is shrinking. We've talked about some of these um, effects of changes on health systems. Health systems are also consolidating as well, and narrow networks seem to be getting smaller. So you hear lots of stories about patients who feel like they're cut off their, from their previous providers because now they're a part of a narrow network, or large companies losing earnings after being excluded from these networks. Are narrow networks affecting independent providers? If so, you know what do they need to know about narrow networks so they can feel more prepared? The most important thing to know about narrow networks is that narrow networks always favor the provider who is lower cost and higher quality. Because by their definition, narrow networks are intended to bring down costs. And they do that in two ways. They exclude the higher cost provider and they include and steer more patient care to the lower cost provider. Um, Narrow networks are, are becoming more prevalent for some of the reasons we just discussed. There's medical cost inflation at two to three times the rate of normal inflation. Insurance regulators, um, companies are pushing back on that medical cost growth. They're looking for solutions. In many cases, companies, particularly large sophisticated companies, are very specific in demanding a narrow network offering from a health plan. And so we're seeing a lot more of these now than we ever did before. One, one of the things I did at, at Anthem um, before coming to Privia was I ran all the public exchanges business uh, for Anthem across the U.S. And we built our exchange products around narrow networks. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is because um, generally uh, our customers who were buying health products on the public exchanges tended to be lower income um, uh, buyers. And so price was extremely important to their purchasing decision. In fact, we we conducted a a simulation of about 5,000 people before we initially launched our, our exchange products. And we tested what factors were most important to consumers in the simulated purchase on the exchange. And every time the most important factor was price. And when we simulated the, the trade-offs between price and access, price always prevailed. Mm-hmm. It even prevailed when uh, we would ask potential consumers in the simulation whether they were willing to trade off access to their community hospital. It was the most important criterion when we asked if they would forego access to a particular specialist with whom they had a relationship. Primary care was a little different. Um, it was a harder trade-off for, uh, for consumers to make, but they generally did were willing to make that trade-off if the price was significant enough for them. They would rather have affordable coverage than broad access to a network. And so it was on that basis that we began to construct narrow networks for our exchange products. And 
as um, as a lot of our, our group customers, our, our, our businesses that we provided health benefits to, saw the impact on total cost of a narrow network, they began to then ask for the same networks for their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an awareness of narrow networks, and um, I think we'll see more of them over time. And I think that those providers who are positioned as low cost and high quality are really in the catbird seat and have an opportunity to um, not only be included in those networks, but to see you know financial rewards for being in them and to even see an increase in patient volume. So payers and providers are entering in more joint partnerships and the traditional lines in healthcare are becoming blurred. As these relationships are starting to shift, can independent practices stay ahead of the curve? What should independent doctors do proactively to make sure that they too are in beneficial relationships with the payers in their market? The most important consideration um, when it comes to a, a partnership with a payer, and there are all different kinds. There are narrow networks like we just talked about. There are pay-for-value programs with some looking more like traditional pay-for-quality programs and others being looking more like um, 1980s capitation, although with um, you know some new twists. But there, there are lots of different ways to get into payer relationships. For independent providers, the most important thing is the, uh, the organization with whom they affiliate in order to be in those partnerships. Because payers typically aren't coming out to small providers looking to do partnerships. Right. Payers want to know that you have enough uh, patient lives and people that they would consider to be their customers. They want to know that there's a critical mass, um, that it's worthwhile having a, a partnership. And so the choice of how to align and who to align with is really important. And there are lots of choices, right? There are clinically integrated networks that are run by health systems. There are uh, independent IPAs. Um, there are organizations like, uh, you know, Privia that operate in a group practice model. In selecting those um, partnerships, um, my advice would be to really focus on a couple of things. The first is who has the payer experience to make sure that the deals are constructed in, in a way that is fair and that there's a lev- level playing ground on which performance is evaluated. Because if the playing field is tipped towards the payer, then it's awfully hard to win. And you're always running uphill. Mm-hmm. So you want a level playing field and making sure that the organization um, has the right experience and skill set in dealing with payers is important. The other thing that is important is making sure that you're aligning with an organization that has the capabilities to help you win. And by that, I mean making sure that there will be healthcare analytics, there will be data that will really enable providers to um, perform individually and then collectively as as an entity. And there are a lot of organizations who, who claim to be good at this 
right? But oftentimes, or, organizations, um, uh, they try to boil the ocean when it comes to analytics mm-hmm. and, uh, and data, and, and they don't, in the end, provide really useful uh, analytics for, for providers to, to use. Um, but you also have to have, um, you know, IT capabilities that, um, you know, really allow physicians to still practice medicine without having to focus on necessarily on every little thing that has to be done to make sure that you're performing in the kind of payer relationship that, you know, is kind of customary these days. Um, that have to be there has to be the kind of IT that's really embedded in the workflow to make sure that um, these things just hap- happen in the normal course of patient care. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things I would be looking at to make sure that in developing payer partnerships, you're, you're, you're really aligned with the right organization. So CVS reported that they had actually lost some earnings previously due to narrow networks, but they've just announced they actually will purchase Aetna in a massive deal valued at $66 billion. Aetna previously attempted a partnership with Humana that was considered a violation of antitrust laws, but this partnership seems a little different as it's more vertical than lateral. So how do you think a partnership like this, should it go through, will affect healthcare? Do you think we'll see more of these more unique partnerships in the future? I think we'll see a lot more of these partnerships in the future. If if you remember about two years ago, there was a wave of, of potential merger activity among health insurance companies. And that was really driven by the fact that m- almost all of the five major, I think, in fact, all of the five major national healthcare insurance companies are for-profit and publicly traded. That means that there's continuous invest, uh, investor pressure to grow. Um, grow revenue, grow bottom line earnings. And with um, the number of insured Americans plateauing under the ACA and probably sometime around 2015, 2016, um, the, the, the growth in premium revenue and the growth in, in earnings also kind of plateaued. And so um, the insurance industry began began looking for ways to merge and um, um, find uh, synergies in their business, and of, of course those failed because the um, uh, the um, Department of Justice um, disapproved of those and um, and took all the insurers to court and won. Um, Aetna was one of them, as as you mentioned. Aetna tried to merge with Humana. Mm-hmm. Um, Aetna is generally strong in, you know, commercial health insurance, but not so strong in Medicare Advantage. And so that seemed like a natural marriage at the time. So this shift in selling to CVS is, is a pretty significant shift. And I, I think it's important in the sense that um, it, it really is an attempt by CVS, as, at least on the surface, it seems like an attempt to get deeper into healthcare delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, they are one of the uh, the world's largest um, distributor of of, um, of drugs. Um, they also have they're also in the business of primary care through their their mini clinics, and um, now they will be in the health plan business as well. And it's the continuation of a trend, in my opinion, for payers to push deeper into healthcare delivery. And conversely, for um, 
healthcare uh, providers, large health systems in particular, to push into the business of um, health insurance. And so we're seeing this happen more and more where there's this integration between healthcare um, financing and healthcare delivery. And ultimately, the end game is to control more of healthcare financing and healthcare delivery in the hopes that you can provide a product ultimately to consumers that's lower cost, has better access, and hopefully is of better quality. And by having that better value proposition, you'll win. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably the hope of CVS and Aetna in, in this particular case. And if it gets um, approved, we should probably expect, you know, two to three years of, um, you know, CVS as the as the, the parent entity to really push hard to um, expand the way it touches um, its customers clinically and to maybe push deeper into primary care and maybe push deeper into specialty care mm -hmm. um, and certainly to push their patients into Aetna products. So we've talked a lot about sort of payer trends and kind of what we've seen recently. Where is Privia heading in 2018? How are we using this information and all these shifts in healthcare to set our doctors up for success um, in the next coming year? I think 2018 has the potential. In fact, I think it will be the most exciting year in Privia's history. We have some, um, some strategic initiatives underway that we'll be introducing to, uh, to our providers next year that I think are game changing. Um, the, the one that comes to mind is, is virtual scribes. We've been running a pilot with, um, with some of our physicians in 2017. And um, in that pilot, we, you know, we partnered the physicians with um, virtual scribes and, and the results were just incredible. We found that, um, uh, that the, the doctors who had virtual scribes had somewhere between, or, or up to, I should say, 20 to 24 hours per month um, that they didn't have to spend doing charting. Mm -hmm. um, the average was between 12 to 16, mm -hmm. but that was all time that doctors were able to uh, either spend with their families, therefore improving the quality of their lives. Always good. Always good. <laughs> or um, they were able to reinvest their time into patient care. So on average, the doctors in the pilot spent three to five minutes more per visit per patient, which is really incredible. And I think at the end of the day, all doctors really want that balance of a healthy personal lifestyle and to provide care in the most um, um, meaningful way they can. And to be able to spend more time with patients mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is really important to them. So we're really excited by the results of that pilot, and we're going to be rolling out the virtual scribes, um, you know, across across Privia and 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 with our doctors. So we're really excited about that. We're also excited about virtual visits. We um, we've partnered with a telehealth company, and we've integrated the ability now to do virtual visits with patients right in the EMR. So there's no disruption. Um, in workflow to physicians who want to have a virtual visit with a patient. Um, we have the, the ability to integrate it with um, scheduling. So these virtual visits can be scheduled. Um, and, um, 
you know, we, we can we can bill right from the EMR. So, you know, this is a way to um, allow patients to access their doctors in, in a way that's hard for them today. And if you think about why that's important, you know, many people can't access primary care uh, today with, without some sort of inconvenience in their personal life because um, in most American families, you know, um, there are two people working, right? So you, you generally have to leave work to see your primary care physician. And after hours care is really only available usually through uh, urgent care clinics or maybe there's an immediate care clinic. Um, and so that's disruptive to the, the physician-patient relationship because physician never really knows that their patient may have had an issue that required them to go to urgent care. What virtual visits allow our physicians now to do is to make themselves accessible um, to their patients from the comfort of a patient's home, from the workplace, on the hours that are convenient for the patient, um, to be able to capture the encounter in the medical record, to be able to bill. So this is, this is an important clinical functionality, both for physicians, but it's also a really important um, uh, you know, patient feature that will, will make for happy patients. And then, you know, finally, I think we, we as an organization are beginning to har uh, harness the collective uh, clinical knowledge and passion that our doctors have for changing medicine in all the right ways. And so we have some clinical initiatives underway that I'm personally really excited about. One of them that we've just kicked off is an, an end of life, um, you know, strategy where our doctors have, have talked a lot about the fact that 80% of people, if you ask them during a time of health, would say that uh, when the time comes to die, they would prefer to die at home mm -hmm. and not die in a facility like a hospital or a nursing home. And yet that statistic in reality is flip-flopped. 80% of people end up dying in a facility, a hospital, a nursing home, a rehab facility. And so if you, if you think about that, Americans most of the time die in a way that they don't want to. And the, the worst irony is that because they can't die the way they want to, it actually costs the system far more money than it should because the, the cost of care in the final seven to 14 days of, li of, of life, you know, for patients who are hospitalized at thousands of dollars per day or continue to be infused with chemotherapy drugs, even though that treatment is futile, where those treatments cost thousands of dollars per infusion, those costs add up quickly. So we have a situation where we spend a lot of money um, on patients, on, on helping patients die in a way that they don't want to. Right. And and our doctors have a lot of energy around changing that. And with the, the culture of innovation, the willingness um, at our organization to take on really challenging problems like that, we're committed to to finding clinical solutions that address that problem. And so 
we have a lot of these things that we're working on that we're really excited about, but, but these are just a few that come to mind. Thank you to Doug and Dave for joining us and thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to future episodes or check out past episodes at go.privyhealth.com slash the break room. You can also find the break room on iTunes. So please subscribe, rate this episode and leave a review. If you have any questions or want to learn more about how we're putting independent physicians back in the driver's seat of healthcare, please contact the Privia team at 888-996-0232. Happy holidays and we will see you next year.